that everybody can join us tonight. You are watching School Psych Podcast. My name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist in Maryland. Um, excited for, for tonight's guest. She's a very, um, you know, has a lot of varied knowledge. And I um, originally saw her posting a lot on, on some Facebook groups and like her, her responses to questions were just always so insightful. And I was like, I have to, I have to get her on the podcast. And luckily she agreed. So real, really happy for this conversation. But I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca. Rebecca's going to tell everybody how you can participate tonight if you're watching live. Rebecca. Hi, everybody. I'm Rebecca, and I'm a school psychologist in the state of Florida, and I'm so glad you're here tonight as well. And if you are watching us live, sign into your YouTube account. Even if you came on a little bit past eight, you'll you'll get the sort of the live version, streamed live version, and your comments, if you at, want to ask questions or make comments, will link up right to the video um, where the conversation is happening. So please feel free to comment alongside your video if you're watching us tonight. And if you're listening later or watching later at another date, um, the recording also comments because the comments stay along with the video and we can continue the conversation over time. You can also, if you want to send us a sort of um, more uh, private message, you can message us on the Facebook page, School Psyched podcast page on Facebook or School Psyched Your School Psychologist, or you can tweet at us if you want to still hang in there on Twitter like we are. Um, <laughs> and you can use the hashtag psyched podcast. So we look forward to, I'll be looking for notifications and look forward to hearing from you tonight. And now I'm going to pass it over to Eric, Eric who's going to introduce himself and our wonderful guest. All right. Thank you, Rebecca. Well, I am excited to introduce our guest. And my name is Eric. I'm a school psychologist in the state of Connecticut. And we have Dr. Stephanie Nelson with us. She is a licensed clinical psychologist who is board certified in pediatric neuropsychology and in clinical neuropsychology. She provides comprehensive neuropsych neuropsychological assessments for children, adolescents, and young adults experiencing a wide range of cognitive, developmental, and social and emotional issues. Some examples she helps with include attention and organizational problems, thinking or processing uh, differences, cognitive profiles associated with medical conditions, language or memory difficulties, sensory problems, uh, and other struggles. Dr. Nelson uh, specializes in assessment of very complex children uh, whose multifaceted challenges have been difficult for families or other professionals uh, to navigate and untangle. She also provides autism evals and her research focus focuses on improving assessment methods for children with neurodevelopmental disorders and their families and making sure that reports are clear, comprehensive, and useful for doctors, therapists, and teachers who work with these children. So welcome, Dr. Nelson. We are happy to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. It's kind of, to me, um, super interesting to have a neuropsychologist uh, as a guest, just because I think in school psychology, we often have neuropsychologists, you know, referred to as sort of, you know, the cream of the crop or the gold standard for evals. And, um, and so sometimes, you know, lawyers and parents all want neuropsych evals. And, um, and so I think it would be great to, to pick your brain a little bit about what, um, you know, what is a neuropsych eval all about? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and what are some differences maybe between school psych evals and when might be a good time to refer those kinds of things? Sure, sure. 
Yeah. As long as we're clear that like there's no hierarchy, like there are different types of evaluations, but uh, neuropsych evals are in no way like better than other types of evaluations. They're just a different, you know, slightly different pathway to get to that career point. And then maybe looking at the child through a little bit of a different lens, but we're all just here trying to figure out kids, right? Yes, yes. I will say that, yeah, as far as, um, it's, I, I get what, what both of you are saying, but yeah, as far as in the school setting, and maybe that's because sometimes we deal with, so if we're not, if we're not in private practice, say, where, where somebody is willingly coming to you and I, I want this evaluation from you. Sometimes we have parents that, you know, their kid has been referred and maybe they're not so thrilled about it mm-hmm. or um, they're, they're not, you know, they didn't choose us. So we're, we're kind of there and we're what they get. And so oftentimes we get, you know, either lawyers or advocates or angry parents and, you know, no, we don't like what you did there. We're going to go to this other person and they shop around. And oftentimes it's kind of, it's the neuropsych. And so, you know, we're, we're painted in those contentious situations as kind of like, we're going to go over you (laughs) type of thing. Yeah. It's, I honestly think it's one of the tragedies of our field that our evaluations, that that some of our interactions end up being like this outside expert versus the school rather than something that can be much more collaborative, much more just two different professionals looking at the child with maybe a, a different lens and um, different pathways to get to the evaluation. But the fact that, you know, when, when you guys invited me on, I'm like, are you? are you sure? Are you, do you guys not, do you not hate all neuropsychologists yet? Because I am sure that you have had some of those contentious interactions with neuropsychologists. And I really do think that that's a tragedy. And I hope that that conversations like this help bridge some of that gap and, and help us realize that like, oh, this is not, most neuropsychologists do not think of themselves as like doing a better evaluation or hope that parents will come to us when the, you know, they don't like what they're getting somewhere else. <laughs> uh, so just wanted to put that out there. <laughs> no, that, that's like really nice. And I think um, my my difficulty sometimes is trying to explain to parents like what are the differences and um, and like sort of pros and cons because in I uh, work at a private school and so mm-hmm. often we're referring out for all kinds of testing because we don't do that much in-house sure. and so um, when a parent is trying to make a decision um, between uh, recommendations for an evaluator, between someone who who calls their reports psychoeducational evaluations or or neuropsychological, sometimes it's hard. Even as a person who you know, a school psychologist who understands and has looked at the reports, uh, it's hard to, to explain like what is the difference. And um, so, how would you do that? How how would yeah. you suggest that that we do that? <laughs> I- Obviously, the overlap is really high, right? Some of the evaluations that I do, even as a pediatric neuropsychologist, would be better termed psychoeducational evaluations in the sense that I'm focusing primarily on how the child is doing in the school setting and how they're learning and how I can best support them. And some of my evaluations focus on other topics. So I also see kids with medical disorders. I also see kids with psychological disorders that might only be affecting them at home or um, conditions where it's just really complicated. And I'm doing a little bit more than 
what might be sort of my psychoeducational testing. But really, it's just that I got to assessment a different way. And so I am sort of like, oh, I test kids in sort of any type of setting. Well, you know where they spend a third of their lives <laughs> is school. So I end up sort of overlapping with a psychoeducational evaluation. So I always recommend referring to a neuropsychologist if there's a medical thing, right? Because we have specialized training in that. And then maybe if there's something that's affecting the child that the parent's very concerned about, but maybe isn't affecting the child at school, maybe a neuropsychological evaluation would be helpful. Or if you've maybe done some testing or worked with the child in school and you kind of thought you had a sense of it and you're like, oh, this is just still a bit of a puzzle. Maybe someone outside who is seeing the child holistically, but outside of the school setting and just isn't coming with maybe some of that, some of the history that you've had with that student or the interactions. Those might all be good reasons to refer, but it's not, there's never a good reason of like, oh, it's just better testing. <laughs> I was just, you know, I am, when I see, so most of my interactions, I don't have many interactions directly with neuropsychs. It's usually, you know, a parent brings me a report and then mm-hmm. we want to kind of integrate this report into, um, you know, translate it and and figure out what what this means for the school setting. Does this child need an IEP? Do they already have an IEP? Do we need to update things? Do we need to look at different settings, different placements, different services? Can we meet their needs, et cetera? Um, I've seen just a huge variety as far as the the way that reports are constructed. And and this is the same with school psychologists too. You know, the the quality of reports is what, 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 as, as a, a neuropsych, like what training, who gets to call themselves a neuropsychologist? Like what training programs? I've heard of things like the Houston conference model. I don't really know one. I wouldn't know one training. If, if there's a, <laughs> if there's preferred training, better training, what, what certifications do you all have? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and, and there's also confusion about like what a school psychologist means. So people listening to this will understand when I say like, it's all kind of complicated. Uh, neuropsychologist is not actually a protected term, so technically anyone can call themselves a neuropsychologist or say that they do neuropsychological testing or neuropsych-informed testing, which a lot of school psychologists do, for example, and that's accurate. For people who are who call themselves neuropsychologists and kind of other neuropsychologists would say, yeah, that's true, or they're eligible for board certification. What they've done is they've gone and gotten their doctorate somewhere, their PsyD or their PhD, then they did their internship, and then they did two extra years of postdoctoral fellowship specifically in pediatric neuropsychology. And the Houston Conference Guidelines lays out these competencies that we have to meet. We're actually revising those competencies because they're 25 years old now and they are very, um, they're not very relevant to the America that we have now in terms of including diversity and inclusion and multilingual populations and different ways that people get to their path career-wise. So we're, we're revising those and we're going to call it the Minnesota Conference. But um, people who say Houston Conference guidelines, they mean that two-year postdoc. They mean these kind of competencies, that sort of thing. So that's who tends to get to call themselves a neuropsychologist. But that postdoctoral placement can be in a variety of situations. It can be in a variety of settings. So some people have trained in a hospital. Some people have trained in schools. Some people have trained in a private practice clinic. Some people have done kind of a hybrid of a lot of those or at a VA or something like that. And that 
affects the types of reports that they write. So that's part of why you see that wide variety of different types of evaluations. And then there's just, just like school psychologists, there's not a lot of standards in the field for what a good report is. So some people think a good report is something that's three pages long and really succinct and very captures the the problem in a lot of jargon, but very few words. And some people write those 50-page ones where you just kind of sigh when you sit down to read them, I'm sure. (laughs) How are we going to see if this fits? Some neuropsychologists have had tons of training in school settings and with educational law and others kind of got there because they kept seeing kids and they sort of had to learn on the job. So neuropsychologists also really vary in how much experience they have interfacing with special education law, with school staff, that sort of thing. So some of that it might help explain why you're like, you know, I like some of the neuropsych reports, but others of them... <laughs> What, what is this, please? Um, is it has a lot to do with our training and wh- what type of experience we had when we got there, and then just general messiness in our fields. <laughs> is there any difference in the way um, neuropsychologists look at and interpret tests, the same tests that maybe school psychologists use? Like, you know, like the Wechsler scales, or is there a difference in the way you look at the scores or the performance on those kinds of tests that we use too? I don't think necessarily. A lot of times I'm looking at a WISC and you're looking at a WISC and we're seeing a VMI of 85 and we're thinking about what that, uh, sorry, a, a WMI of 85 and we're thinking about what would low working memory mean for this child in the classroom. But I might also be thinking about the functional neuroanatomy or the medical or psychological problem that the person brought in, whereas you're probably going to be thinking more about the classroom implications and what types of services this child might need. We also might have different referral questions. You might be trying to help the team answer the question of, does this child meet the criteria to get an IEP, whereas that's usually like my eighth consideration. I'm trying to figure out like what the disorder is, what recommendations, that sort of thing. And then I kind of get to that question with the understanding that I have a lot less expertise in that. And mostly I'm trying to kind of get a sense of case conceptualization. So we have maybe different like reasons we're using the tests, but most of the time we're both looking at the WISC and being like, huh, you know, digit spans a seven. Um, what might that mean for this child? That's so interesting to also because Eric and I have been talking about this recently where a lot of referrals for, for testing um, even before we get to figure out whether they're appropriate or, or not, it seems as though there's a motivation from whether it's a teacher or a parent um, or a belief that the testing is going to be a solution in itself. And, mm. and you know, off, often for us, it's not. <laughs> but but I, I wonder, like, might it be if it were a different lens? Like if it so. But what you're saying makes sense to me that if there's a medical question or. Um, it's, it's just answering different questions though, Mm -hmm. regardless of, of, um, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And people come to us 
to all of us who do testing with all sorts of questions. And some of them are very obvious. They want to know, is this dyslexia? Or they want to know, does he qualify for special education? Um, But they also have I'm always talking about they come in with like secret questions, like they're hoping that the diagnosis or the evaluation process will solve some sort of psychological need that they personally have or that their family has. And sometimes they're like, they don't even know what that is. They just think maybe a diagnosis will help put an end to the struggle. So there is a lot of pressure, I think, and that's common on all of us who do testing of that other piece of why the family might want the evaluation that goes beyond the diagnosis that we're providing or the uh, eligibility decision we're trying to make. That's so well said. I I think it's sort of, I don't know if I would call it a hidden agenda and it's probably not even conscious, you know, but right. What, what is the underlying thing that folks are looking for? And I think that's so important to be aware of. the, the extra referral question, so to speak. <laughs> I do a lot of consultation work where people come to me with cases and I'm always trying to get, okay, what's the, what's the actual question here? And sometimes it's kind of, it'll be sort of vague because the child's already getting services that, you know, all the services they might need and they've, had a diagnosis last year and you're sort of like, why are we doing testing now? And people will be like, well, they, you know, just want a, an update. And, and I'm constantly pushing them like, what for? Why are we really doing this? Even in the school setting, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of energy. Everybody's filling out a lot of forms. Why are we doing this? And sometimes it's looking for that magic answer, but sometimes it's answering deeper questions about shame or family functioning or loss or grief or hope. And knowing that can go a long way towards us thinking about our evaluations as part of the family's journey over and above the, the, in the, you know, the information that we put in so many words in our reports. <laughs> I love that you're, um, you know, kind of gently pushing back against that because like, that's as far as the, the over testing type of mm-hmm. thing. I mean, I, all the time, you know, a parent, um, recently brought in a full evaluation and a year ago and we want another one and it's kind of like okay why what do you want to, how do you do you think this one's going to be very different we're still struggling in this area in this area like what what is so yeah it's <laughs> mm-hmm. I also I wanted to ask you like going back when you were talking about you know um, you know, the meaning behind scores, like the memory um, and block design or things of that nature. We've had a couple guests on, you know, within the field of school psychology that um, talk about profile analysis, cognitive profile analysis, and scatter doesn't matter and things like that, that there's a little bit of this discussion. And I don't know if it's within kind of the neuropsych community or if it's just um, within school psych, but their discussion about how useful are those index scores and those subscale scores and as far as reliability, validity, and actually making predictions about what students are going to be looking like in the real world. Is that a conversation (laughs) that's going on in your neck of the woods as well or... Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. We have lots of um, scatter doesn't matter versus profile analysis discussions um, all of the time. Um, Most neuropsychologists are a little bit more on the scatter doesn't matter side, but again, it depends where you were trained. What I always think about is, okay, 
yes, scatter doesn't matter for some questions, right? Um, so it depends on the question that you're trying to ask. If you're trying to get a sense of generally trying to predict the child's academic achievement, the full-scale IQ contributes the largest amount of variance to that, like 50 to 60% of the variance, and that's going to be the most valid for predicting that, whether there's a lot of scatter or not. And if you're trying to answer a specific referral question, the unevenness of the profile may be relevant. It might not, but sometimes it is relevant or helps you understand something unique about the child, assuming you've also confirmed that through record review and talking to the teacher and your interview that you've done and your observations with the child and some other test to confirm it, right? You're not just like, oh, there's a 10-point split here. I've figured it out, right? Um, <laughs> but it may actually help you understand something about the specific reason that we're here or some way that the child could maybe use a strength to compensate in the classroom or some way that you could tailor an intervention that you're trying to do, it may be relevant for that. Is it better for predicting achievement? No, the full-scale IQ is clearly the best for that. But it depends on the question that you're asking, I think, right? I like that. And and uh, you know, I think uh, I, I teach a class on assessment uh, in a, a school psych program, just adjunct. And uh, that's one of the things I'm trying to get my my students to recognize is that, um, you know, the test score on a piece of paper itself tells us just a little bit, but there are so many more things to tell us about the child, mm-hmm. the record review, the observations, <laughs> the interviewing parents, developmental social histories, and um and so many pieces, right? And and so when we look at that score, it could be a fluke, you know, or it could say, yeah, this is really confirmed by everything we know now. Um, it, yeah, that's so exactly. Right. It could be normal variability. It could have been the child was hungry that moment. It could have been you actually kind of administered the test route. Like it could be so many different things. But if we think about like um, Hassan Carrier's riot model of like records, interview, observation, testing, right? Like testing is one quarter of it, <laughs> just one quarter of it. And I would love it if I could just test a kid and the test scores come back like blood work and I immediately know what's wrong. That would be amazing. And our tests aren't that good yet. The ecological validity of them is not there. The test retest reliability, all of the construct validity, none of it is there yet. So it is one piece. I always say like test scores are an invitation, (laughs) like an invitation to rethink a hypothesis you might have in mind or to consider something maybe you didn't consider before or to get more data to kind of see like, oh, I wasn't expecting that score to be that high or that low. I'm now I'm going to test it some more or, or see if I can find out more about that. But we can't use them like an x-ray <laughs> as much as th- that would be amazing. <laughs> right. And I think that's really hard for students because they're so excited about the tests. And honestly, I mean, we're all test nerds, right? Like when you get a new test, like you open it up and you're like, oh, yay, this is this is going to be the answer. <laughs> um, and it just it just isn't. <laughs> 
I love that. And I hadn't thought, I mean, obviously I'm familiar with the riot model, but I hadn't yeah. thought of it in that capacity that it's, you know, this, this portion in there. So we're really, we don't give it equal, you know, weight because right. we're just, we want the test scores and, and mm -hmm. this, uh, the IEP teams and everybody, they, they want the test scores and they don't care about the other right? stuff. And it's so seductive. But if you've ever been in one of those Facebook groups, you see people post blind test scores all of the time and 20 different interpretations come up and they all sound reasonable honestly you know one of them you'll be kind of like <laughs> but like the other 19 sound pretty good right because test scores could match a lot of different profiles and they're an invitation to consider those 19 possibilities but we need the other 75 percent of our assessment to tell us how to interpret that in context I'm just like grinning as you're saying that because I've had that same experience you know, yeah, where you exactly. see this whole list and you're like, oh, okay, okay, okay. Like, what? Like, yeah. what? Where are you coming from? I'm just like, oh, <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. You mentioned um, the case conceptualization process. And I wonder, I'm not sure about all school psychologists, but I know for myself, we didn't, we, we may have talked about it, and I certainly have done at NASP um, webinars where presenters uh, shared their, their versions and formats of, of how to do that. But now as a student in clinical psychology, we're really going over like, what is that? What do you put into it? How do you do it? How, how does it make sense? And how can it often not make sense and be useful? But I wonder for school psychologists out there, if you're watching this whenever, live or later, chime in and let me know if you were taught in a school psychology program how to do that before the referral process. Because I, I wonder if we were to do that, like to understand when, before a question becomes a concern, like a teacher says, I'm wondering about why this child's XYZ or why this child's performance in this class is this way or whatever. If we were to start to gather data then, like before the official data, I think we might get um, like a broader range of, of um, sources of data, more types of data. Last week we were talking about hacking deficit thinking by uh, Byron McClure and Kelsey Reed. And, and in that book, they, they talk about the kinds of data we don't typically collect. Mm -hmm. But I think if we thought of ourselves as doing like a case conceptualization before a question becomes a concern, that could really be helpful. Even, even if then we do go on to like do a formal evaluation and, and collect that kind of official data. I don't know. What do you, when I say that and Rachel and Eric too, do you all have like a case conceptualization process or have you, do you know about that in school psych? I'm just ask all of you. <laughs> You know, I, I think we have um, a response to intervention or multi-tiered systems of support teams that sort of meet uh, with teachers on uh, varying students who are displaying mild to significant uh, difficulties with reading, math, writing, or behavior. And so I think at least at that level, we do provide um, recommendations for intervention. And some of these are kids who will stay at that tier one level, just needing differentiation in the classroom um, or uh, some sort of 
intervention, maybe mild. Um, and some of these kids are kids who just scored low on the, the current reading evaluation and with a little intervention and tier two support, they stay at that level or move back. So we, we are trying to sort of use that, I guess it would be a consultation sort of model um, and, and um, hypothesize what might be going on with the kids. Typically, it's instructional strategies and, and instructional or behavioral intervention. But um, yeah, but we're trying to do that before they get to that full-blown referral um, for special education. Um, I think it's, it's, it's been, it's new, you know, our system's been adopting this over the last, I don't know, five, seven years, but some of our schools in my system do it really, really well. Probably, you know, like any system, some are still learning the the process or working the bugs out. You know, they've done a lot of research in the field of medicine that, as we get busier and busier, which I think we can relate to with our medical colleagues, <laughs> with our busy schedules, it we often start replacing the harder, more complicated, more multifaceted questions with the easier question to answer. And we don't even necessarily know we are doing it, but we start thinking you know, what's the IEP category this child might be under or what's the diagnosis or the parents want to know if it's ADHD. So I'm going to answer that. And that question feels a lot easier to answer than, wow, this child has overwhelmed the needs of the the teacher, the parents. He's very uncomfortable. What are we going to do? Like that feels like a big, hard question to answer. And with our tests and with our time limits, it really is. And so we often just start naturally replacing the question with sort of something (laughs) that feels easier. Uh, And it takes conscious effort, they've found, like, real training. I do it a lot with my colleagues where I'll like, we'll stop and say, okay, now we kind of have a idea. Let's make our playlist. Let's try and think of as many things that could be going on here, even sort of some outside of the box things, just to make sure we're not getting locked into that narrow referral question that's going to bias us and maybe not create a complete picture of the child, like, let's stop here and see if we can kind of try and expand it a little bit more. Not to like, what's everything that I could possibly know about this child, (laughs) right? But to something that's a little bit more uh, expansive, there's a little bit more room, there's a little bit more cognitive playfulness and flexibility. And they found that when you do that, we actually make better decisions. So... I think that model, too, of, of bouncing ideas off of colleagues is, mm-hmm. is so important. And oftentimes school psychs, we're in, you know, we're, we're not around other school psychs. We're in our building. Maybe mm-hmm. we I see my other fellow psychs, you know, um, four times a year type of thing. I'm sure that it varies for neuropsychs as far as if you're in private practice alone or in a group. And um, so I'm sure, yeah, there's a lot of benefit to just talking things through and checking in with others. Absolutely. And many of us are very isolated. Like when COVID hit, I barely noticed in terms of who I interacted with on a daily basis. <laughs> I was just still in my office by myself, is seeing one patient at a time. So it, we have to consciously think about ways to bounce things off, bounce ideas off of our colleagues and kind of create that peer group 
And it can't just be, you know, the three friends we made in graduate school who think exactly like us. We have to find other people who think about different things, have different expertise, are different from us, challenge us, because otherwise we're really just bouncing ideas off a mirror, which doesn't help us expand, right? Yeah. I really like that. And just that whole thought about, you know, taking some time to really ask the harder questions or look beyond the surface. Um, I can't even, yeah, you know, we all know how hard COVID has been and how many cases we've had uh, just sort of pile up because of, you know, the impact of COVID and loss of instruction and social and emotional needs. And and right, you sort of become like a triage um, mm-hmm. school psychologist or neuropsych or um, wherever you are in the field. And um, being able to take that time is a, is a wonderful opportunity to, to get to the heart of what's going on with a child. So, right. yeah, I appreciate that. And most of us are so overworked and so underfunded and have such little access to be able to do that. And so it is a luxury. And this is part of why I get so passionate about us writing reports that are faster and easier for us to write, or not just better for people to read, but like actually give us a little bit of that extra time so that we have some of that bandwidth to put back into those questions at the beginning. Because if you're trying to write however many reports you're trying to write a week, it's <laughs> what we're talking about of taking the time to think about the kid. Sure, at midnight when <laughs> all the kids are asleep, I guess, right? So part of why I'm so passionate as well about better reports is not just so that we have more of a standard in our field and parents can actually read them and but so that we have some more time to do some thinking <laughs> right that's so good that all of what you just said just such so resonates with me and so we're we're talking about kind of the importance of um collaboration and consulting with others and really taking our time to think about uh, our evaluation, our questions and our, and the data that we have. And it makes me think of something that you, that we talked about offline that you brought up, which is the social model of disability, because Mm. as Eric was saying, you know, COVID made like everything is a referral, like every single thing, right. It's like everybody's worried about our kids. And um, so can you tell us about that? What is that the social model of disability and how do you think that has changed things for referral questions and referrals and school psychologists and neuropsychologists as well? Oh, sure. So we used to just have sort of the medical model of disability, like a doctor could look at you and almost visibly see what was wrong with your body or your brain or the way that you acted and therefore make a diagnosis of a disability. And people who met the criteria for a disability pushed back and they said, actually, I'm (laughs) disabled by what you guys are doing around me. I'm disabled by the environment. And that led to the social model of the disability, which is that what happens in the environment when it is not inclusive, when it does not allow access, that 
that's what causes the disability. That sometimes goes a little bit too far, right? People do really have things that are medically or statistically quite different about them and in ways that may cause pain or discomfort. It's not just the the fact that the environment may not allow access. So we've more come to something that's a little bit of an intersection where the difference belongs to the person. What's different about them is is just it's something that's inherent in their makeup or their uh, body or their uh, way of thinking about the world. But the disability, whether or not it's disabling, is something that belongs to the environment. So like the World Health Organization defines a disability as when you have a difference that limits activity some some sort of daily activity that's either important to you or is required of you in your environment that then limits participation. So the difference part is you. Um, you like I uh, can't see without my contacts in. That is just true of me. And whether if it limited my activity, if glasses or contacts weren't available in my environment, that it might limit my activity. And that's kind of an intersection of me and the environment. And then my participation is entirely dependent on the environment that I'm in. Is it inclusive? Does it allow things? So we are often, like I'm often trying to find the difference in a child as part of my evaluation. But whether or not it's a disability depends on all kinds of things about the environment. Um, A good example would be something like dyslexia. So I'm looking for the difference. Are there phonological processing differences in this child that are limiting his activity? Maybe reading is required of him in the school setting that he's in, which then limits his participation. That's not the same for every child, right? A a child who is learning English, their phonological processing could limit their activity and then their participation. But in another language that doesn't, you know, that's logographic, like uh, Chinese, the phonological processing maybe wouldn't be causing the same disability, even though the difference belongs to the child. So that's sort of how I understand the, where we've kind of gone in terms of understanding what what disability is versus the difference that the person has that they come into the world with. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I wonder then if you'd think that a child, let's say, you know, like the kids that we call twice exceptional, maybe gifted with a disability, the diff, what, what we're talking about in that sense might be like an intrapersonal difference but it's actually not a disability if their strengths help them participate and engage, you know, equally. Although parents or teachers may say, yes, but their potential. And, and that's where we get, you know, into this complicated place where people want something more for a child who's doing really well in mm-hmm. school because they're not meeting their potential. Absolutely. And I think that's a a question that we hear all the time of like, well, his IQ is a 125 and his reading is a, you know, a 93. It's technically in the average range, but it's two standard deviations below. Does this, right? Um, And we haven't yet defined what level of participation 
accounts. So there is still some um, discussion around that. But definitely everyone, I think, can agree, okay, there's a difference in this child. Um, This is definitely something that he or she or they struggle with. And it might be limiting some activities that are important to to them in the sense of maybe they really want to be an avid reader because they live in a world of words and they just really want to. Is it limiting their participation in the classroom? Is it preventing their access from moving forward? We kind of haven't decided. (laughs) I think everyone has their own definition on, on that one still, right? I'm wondering what your thoughts are with some of the discussion and debate um, about, you know, the way we teach um, in schools as far as, you know, science of reading and math. And are we, if we're using ineffective teaching strategies, if we're teaching in ways that are not conducive to learning, um, you know, are we, are we creating differences? Are we creating disabilities? Like, would that not be a consider? We've had guests on that have talked about, you know, that most kids that, that, you know, they're neurologically fine and they walk into a school setting, they're maybe not instructed appropriately. And then, you know, dyslexia or, or something that, that maybe it's not neurologically based is some of this created by an environment. And is that a disability? Is that not like, what, what are your thoughts on some of that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and these are all such difficult questions to answer, obviously. So I'll just start there. And we all know that whole language and then balanced literacy was such a <laughs> um, well-meaning individuals trying to help children read in ways that it turns out do not help children read, at least help children read English. Um, It may help in a language with a less dense orthography or or something like that, um, but it it doesn't seem to help children read English. And so children are being sort of almost actively disabled by their environment in some ways. And we, we do have a lot of kids who somehow still do manage to access the curriculum with that kind of instruction. And we have the kids who really aren't. And then we get into the question of, well, he's, she's being instructed in the wrong way, but the rest of her classmates are making effective educational progress, or at least some progress. This child needs something different than what's available to every child. And so under the World Health Organization, that would be considered a disability in the sense of something in the environment needs to change. (laughs) Um, Some way of supporting that student needs to change because she's not able to participate in what is expected or what's important to her. Um, Whether or not uh, you know, it, it, whether or not she even has a difference, there is a little bit murky. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's all very confusing in the sense that we don't always know the the right way to teach children, and we don't always know that we're doing it wrong. Um, but we know that some kids are making effective progress somehow, despite that, and other kids need something more. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I I. I, I wish that, yeah, it's so murky, like you said, mm-hmm. because oftentimes the majority of the class is below grade level. The majority of the class is not making effective progress. And so you're sit there with this question about maybe this kid's referred and they're middle of the pack in the classroom, but they're below grade level. And all the, you know, it's like, are, is half of the class disabled? And it's just, you know, there's a difference in, 
you know, who gets referred to us for testing and not, you know, some of that comes from parents, some of that comes from biases from teachers. And so sometimes, yeah, I see these kids that I'm like, yeah, they're, they need help. At the same time, there's five other kids in the class that are even lower. Like, I don't know what to do. (laughs) Right. Right. You're touching on all the important equity and inclusion issues of who gets referred. We know that there's a lot of biases and who ends up getting helped. We know that um, a lot of students are not making progress. We know everybody's behind due to COVID and it's all really difficult to, to tease out part of what, it would be lovely if we could do, if we were spending, you know, we were talking about getting more thinking time. It would also be great if we all got more advocacy time, right? Where we could be spending some of our time saying, wow, every child in this classroom is, you know, just barely at or below in reading. Is there a way that we can support this teacher? Is there a way we could support this school? Is there a way we could advocate for the science of reading? And I don't have time to do that because I'm 12 reports behind, right? So part of uh, part of it, again, becomes kind of the snake eating its own tail of like, we need to find ways to get more efficient so that we have more time to be able to help out on an on a where we're lifting everyone up because when we try and just lift up certain students we're going to end up just lifting up certain types of students and i don't think any of us want to do that yeah that's really important uh something just through the discussion um made me just wonder also you know, lately, I think in the last couple of years, we use the term neurodiversity a lot. I'm hearing it uh, from parents and and advocates and educators uh, and folks in the the psychology field. And and I I wonder. I think we use it a lot. At least I hear it a lot. You know, for kids with ADHD, or I used to think of it as primarily for kids who truly had a neurological. Um, and I don't want to say it. Uh, who had like a structural neurological impairment, um, you know, uh, agenesis of the corpus callosum or, um, you know, kids with intellectual disabilities, those kinds of things. But I hear it more for what I would say are, are um, perhaps less obvious disabilities. And so I wonder about that term and, and would love to hear your thoughts about how truly neurodiverse are we? Uh, are we, We're all a little diverse, I think, in so many ways. Um, but are we neurologically diverse? Mm-hmm. That's a, a, such a, a great question. And I will start off by saying that anything that anyone says on this topic is probably going to upset someone. So, <laughs> and part of, I think, what is happening is that the term neurodiverse is a bit confusing. And it's so important to celebrate the differences that people come with and to reduce stigma and to allow all kinds of people to be authentically themselves. So we want that. And yet the word neurodiverse is kind of unclear. So that confusion, I think, ends up muddling things a lot. Because as you said, everybody's neurodiverse. When they've done studies where they just give people off the street, neuropsychological batteries. 
most of them have a score that's really low, <laughs> like two standard deviations below the mean in some area. Not something they were complaining about or knew about. They're just walking around diverse <laughs> because we all are just in the same way that no one looks alike. No one's brains are alike. They're the same in general ways and very different in the specifics. And we have found ways to label some patterns that we're seeing, although there's so many symptoms, right? Like there's so many symptoms for ADHD that you could meet kids who meet criteria who share very little in common, right? So so even there, there's a lot of diversity. Um, same thing with autism, right? You've met one child with autism, you've met one child with autism. They, they may be very different. And we want to reduce the stigma for those kids. And they also often, the kids that we see they're not just saying, oh, I feel a little bit different. They're saying, these things are really hard for me. I have these real problems in my life. I'm in pain and uncomfortable a lot. Maybe because the environment is actively disabling them, but maybe because they're having a hard time reaching their goals. And so the medical model definitely needed to go. <laughs> the social model sometimes has a hard time acknowledging that sometimes these differences that people have really do cause them pain or discomfort or they may want support in that area or it may cause their families a lot of distress. And right now it's all a bit confusing and everyone has great intentions and it's a bit of a muddle. <laughs> That's sort of where I am on that. Where are you guys? That makes so much sense. And I, I think that's a really good explanation. Um, you know, w without scanning everybody with fMRIs or something to really look for uh, structural differences or something, right? We all have differences, but some of those differences cause people pain and distress, and mm -hmm. and reducing the stigma around those is really crucial. So that that was really well said. Mm. And then when you're mentioning things like you know scanning everybody, I and I also feel like even if like there's so much that I feel like we don't know about the brain. Even if we scanned everyone, we would be like, oh, okay, I don't see anything wrong there, but we just don't know enough to like, I don't know. Like, I feel like right. we're, I, I look forward to seeing how technology advances to, to learn more about some of this stuff. I think. Right. Well, that will be so amazing when there is some sort of multi-purpose scan that can really tell us all that unique individual information about a person. And now, like you said, you know, the brain's a structural system, but it's also chemical. It's also electrical. It's also uh, functional. And our, it's, it's shaped by the environment. There's really compelling studies on the fact that we use other people to think <laughs> and we use our bodies to think. So it's so complicated. And to pretend that we know more than we do or that the whisk is going to tell us <laughs> really exactly about that child's brain, right? Um, it, it's seductive. I want to do it. The parents want me to do it. And we all have to just embrace just the humble place that we're in right now. Just like, wow, we really don't know. 
Yeah, I, I find that so interesting. And then when I'm seeing in the news, the things, all this stuff about AI going on, it's like we created this thing and we don't even know how it works. Like, so how are we going to understand what's going on here? I saw right. something on Facebook and I don't know the legitimacy of it, but that they were making headway in being able to scan and derive language. Like, you know, a person that they, that reads a, a sentence you know, I'm looking at the window that they can do a scan and derive like the concept of window and looking and, and things like that. And I was like, if that's true, that's that's really cool. I mean, obviously, there's so many ways that that can kind of go wrong in a muck and it's just kind of the 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 basics of it. But it's it's so interesting. It's so complicated that I'm right. Just, <laughs> and like every sci fi story, you're like, oh, that's amazing. And they're a cautionary tale. <laughs> And I feel like we're at that intersection right now of like, oh, that's amazing. And I can immediately think of like, wouldn't that be incredible for people who don't have access to words that they could think and a computer could speak for them? Like the possibilities are mind boggling. And every sci-fi movie is a cautionary tale for a reason. So how could it go wrong? And yeah, <laughs> I think about this. And I think about well. like legal things and just using, yeah, yeah I mean, right? yeah. But yeah, when you say, oh, and we have our whisk. And so yeah. thinking, I think that, yeah, we make this jump of this whisk. This, and then we're, right? like, yeah. And we know that our tests have bias built into them, not bias that anyone meant to put in there in most cases, but because of how they're developed. And with AI, we often don't even know how they're developed. When they are unsupervised learning, they are learning biases <laughs> and we can't even go in there and fix them <laughs> because we don't know how it was developed. So thinking a lot about the um, social justice and inclusion and diversity aspects of using unsupervised AI um, is uh, keeps me up at night, right? <laughs> Except yeah. I would like ChatGPT to write my reports. That would be yes. amazing. <laughs> My students asked about that this semester. <laughs> right? <laughs> not yet. Not no. yet. It's not good enough yet. I have but. teachers that are putting in, yeah, getting ideas from goals. And what my, my my husband is a teacher and he's caught several children cheating, you know, doing mm -hmm. math problems and then things. So it's, yeah, it's something that there was actually, it was like on an April Fool's, somebody posted on Facebook, like, chat GPT, you just wrote my report. Check this out. And I was like, and like I clicked on it because it got me going, like, is this real? And I was like, oh man. <laughs> it was totally like it, Rick Astley came on or, or something. Like, yeah, right. Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I um I do a um game night on Thursdays with individuals who identify as autistic and we were playing 20 questions uh with chat GPT. And it was so fun. And ChatGPT straight up gave us wrong answers. It was absolutely fine. Like we asked, is it an animal that lives in Africa? And it said yes. And so we kept going in that direction, but the answer was tiger. But it just confidently said yes. <laughs> so um, there's a there's a long way to go um, before we can before these will write my reports. Sure. And I just want to mention, I have a cousin who works for Google and they have their version, Bard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was playing around with Bard and ChatGBT, I would ask it the same really difficult question, like from, oh, wow. you know, from psychology. Yeah. And they would give me totally different answers. And then I would ask, which answer is correct? Like they, they just don't know what they're talking about. That's yeah. all. 
Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. Caveat mTOR, right? <laughs> but Stephanie, I know we're coming up towards the end, but you have such a wonderfully warm way about you. What I really would love um, is for you to give us a couple of tips for feedback to parents after you've gone through the process, because uh, especially if you know that the parents may not have, you know, they're, they're not going to get the answers that they wanted or that it might be like difficult feedback for them. What are some suggestions you'd give us for that? Mm. Well, one would be to focus on your warmth. Um, they have done some great studies about how we all fall somewhere on the warmth versus competence spectrum. I naturally, if you've actually ever seen one of my Facebook posts, I actually go towards competence. Like, like it's like 15 paragraphs long. There's citations, there's links. It's, it's horrifying. Um, and I have to remind myself that a balance of warmth and competence really is the easiest to listen to, the most charismatic. It's the people that we want to be around. And when we go into feedbacks thinking nervous, we all go towards like whatever our, uh, wherever we are in the spectrum. And so I go towards competence and I'm like, oh, I'm going to uh, pull out the DSM and I'm going to have all this expertise and that almost never works. <laughs> so instead, I go towards warmth and I pull out stories and I talk about emotions and I talk about hopes and dreams and wishes. And I really try and do 65% of focusing on the emotions emotions that are involved in this and only 35% of the competence stuff of the diagnosis, the recommendations, the eligibility decisions, which I naturally want to go like 100% on, but I'm like, <laughs> um, so I really try and remember that this is a very emotional process for families and to consciously try and use stories, use emotions and limit what I'm saying. So I always tell people reports or feedback. I use this um, saying of three plus now what? Like you get to tell them three things and then what's next? And I didn't like, three's not my favorite number or anything. It's just our working memory can hold on to about four pieces of complex information. <laughs> so you get three things plus what are we going to do about that? And so naturally limiting what you say um, th so that you don't go in there thinking, oh, this is going to be difficult. I'm going to tell them every single thing I know, including everything about statistics, everything I learned in grad school, everything I learned about this child. <laughs> right? um, I would love to. And that isn't where oh, an effective way of communicating. That's great advice. I love that. Three plus what now? Yeah. I'm going to yeah. <laughs> Okay. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us. I know we're, we're wrapping up. We're short on time. Um, everybody's quiet. I know we have audience of people watching, but you know, haven't seen any questions. But if you have any quick ones or, or comments, please, please drop them. Um, I know that our next... Uh, our next one is 521 and we have Dr. Faustino coming who I'm sure will tell us about what we can expect from um, his presidency at NASP. So um, what, we'll, what we'll be seeing from him and his conference and, and all that good stuff. 
But uh, any last comments, anybody? That was great. I just, yeah, like when you said like the warmth, Rebecca, I was like, yes, like that's, I'm feeling the warmth. I'm like, you just have a very soothing voice and it's just like, you explain things so, so nicely that I'm like, oh, it makes such sense. (laughs) Well, I just really appreciate you guys bringing me on, even for this sort of informal chat. We were kind of talking about like, what are we going to talk about? Well, whatever comes up, just so that we get the chance as professionals who have slightly different lenses to really kind of bridge that gap and realize how much we have in common. So I just, I really appreciate this opportunity and getting to spend an hour with you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, everybody have a good night and enjoy uh, the, the coming week. Yes. Good night, everybody.